Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 41, Counterfeit Gods, by Tim Keller. What drives you? What is the one person or thing or dream that you couldn't live without? What thing, if you lost it, could mean that almost all significance and value would be drained out of your life? Whatever that thing is, the Bible calls it an idol, a counterfeit God. Tim Keller expertly explains how any idol, no matter how good or wonderful, will ultimately break your heart. Taking his cue from Augustine of Hippo, Keller argues that idolatry results from disordered love. Thus, when we put our family or career or cause or goals or whatever else first, we end up suffering rather than getting what we want. God must be first. And when he is, everything else falls into place. When um, the subject of the coherence of Christianity comes up, uh, is Christianity coherent? Is it cogent? Does it make sense? I think ordinarily we go immediately to talking about God. Does he exist? Who is, what is he like? Or we go to talk about uh, to Jesus and his claims, or maybe is the Bible true? Can we trust it? And those are all very important subjects. But I often feel that what gets overlooked in the beginning That if you're a person who's looking at Christianity and you're trying to make sense of it, one of the subjects that's overlooked is what the Bible says, what what the Christian faith says about the human heart, about human nature, and especially about that word sin. Now, why I want to look at that with you tonight is uh, for a couple of reasons. One is some, uh, one wag some years ago put it this way, uh, of all the Christian doctrines only the doctrine of sin is the one, uh, the doctrine of sin is the one Christian doctrine, the only Christian doctrine that, um, for which there's empirical absolute proof. Uh, it's the one thing we can say, I can prove it to you. However, another way to put it is this, an awful lot about what the Christian faith teaches about salvation and about Jesus doesn't make sense unless you understand uh, what the Bible teaches about the human heart. I have often realized now, as over the years, I live in New York, it's a, very, a place filled with very skeptical people, just like Cambridge, a lot of other places. Uh, and I often find that unless I explain what the Bible says about the human heart, very often everything else I'm trying to tell people doesn't make much sense. So let's go there, and let's go there through a theme, and let me introduce the theme with a question. What thing, if you lost it, could almost um, mean that you would lose the will to live. What thing, if you lost it, could mean that almost all significance and value would be drained out of your life? Whatever that thing is, and I'm here tonight to show you that you've got at least something like that in your life. Whatever that thing is, the Bible calls it an idol, a counterfeit God an alternate pseudo-salvation, a, an idol. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. 
Uh, an idol is <clears throat> something more important to God, more fundamental, for your sense of self-worth, for your sense of significance and value, for your sense of security. An idol is anything you love more than God or rest your heart in more than God. Therefore, idols are not bad things, they're good things which you're looking to to give you what only God can give you. They're created things that you're looking to to give what only a creator, if he exists, could give you. So uh, an idol can be career, family, children, spouse, achievement, uh, some political cause, your own physical attractiveness, romance, human approval, power, comfort, financial security, almost anything. And all those are good things. St. Augustine was the most brilliant and perhaps the first Christian thinker uh, past the Bible to expound on this subject, especially in his book, The Confessions. And there he defines sin in a way we probably don't think of. We, when you and I think of sin, we think of uh, violations of the law, behavior. And of course that's true because you know, murder and robbery and lying, all the things that are there in the Ten Commandments, those behaviors are sin. But if you want to go deeper to ask what about the human heart produces those kinds of behaviors, St. Augustine says the essence of sin is disordered love. And what he means is love's out of order. Loving something which you ought to be loving fourth, second, or first. Something that you ought to love, but you shouldn't love it supremely. So for example, uh, just one example of disordered love, an easy one, is uh, should you love your career? Sure. Should, it, you, should you have a passion to do well in your career and be successful? Yes. Should you love your family? Should you love the relationships in your family? Yes. But if you love your career more than your family, if it's out of order, if you put your career ahead of your family, so you're always away from your family, or so your family is always getting second place, you know what's going to happen? You know, I live in Manhattan, and uh, in Manhattan we're very secular people, and we think of, uh, we don't think we're very religious, and when we ever hear about primitive uh, practice, child sacrifice, in ancient times, or maybe places in the world today, we're just horrified. How awful! That, 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 that the gods would be, uh, you'd sacrifice these gods by sa sacrificing your own children, and yet, in Manhattan, there's an awful lot of jobs that require, if you're going to be successful in them, that you perform child sacrifice. That you so neglect your family and so neglect your children that by the time they get a little bit older they are so angry, they are so embittered, they are so messed up that ironically, because you loved your career ahead of your family, you'll find that the family explosions that happen will hurt your career. And therefore what this means is if you love things third that ought to be second or things you know uh, first that ought to be third there's breakdown in your life idolatry is an idol always will break your heart uh, because no created thing can bear the freight of your deepest hopes or the weight of your soul's longings idols will always break your heart so let me give some examples. Uh, Ernest Becker, a brilliant writer, 
who uh, won the Pulitzer Prize years ago in a, with a book, The Denial of Death. Ernest Becker uh, was uh, an agnostic or an atheist. He said he didn't believe in God, very much a secular person. But he also recognized the problem of not believing in God. Because through his book, Denial of Death, he's constantly talking about the fact that if you uh, don't have a God, there's a tendency for you to take something else in your life and turn it into a God. And he gives this example. He says, we see how modern people have put themselves in an impossible position. Modern secular people still need to feel like their lives matter in the grand scheme of things. They still need to feel that there's some higher meaning and that they have experienced some kind of great love. But if there's no longer any God, how are we supposed to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to modern people, to the modern person, was what's been called the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, now in many cases we look to get from our love partner. The lover becomes the way to fulfill one's very life. The worth and meaning now that you want comes from the loved one. The romantic option may be ingenious and it may be uh, creative, but it is a lie that must fail. What is it we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. Nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. That's why we fall in love. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence is not in vain. We turn to the love partner for validation. We expect them to make us good, to make us real through love. Needless to say, human beings cannot do this. Now that's just romance. And I think we all resonate with that. If not you, so you certainly know people who are doing that. That's idolatry. Let me give you another example. This is a much briefer thing, but it gets at it. I read an article some years ago in the New York Times about what happens to really good athletes when they have a career-ending career injury. Now, we're not just talking about professional athletes. Very often, you also have a very gifted amateur athletes. What happens when a, uh, along comes a... Uh, an injury, and that's the end of the career. And the, uh, the doctors who treat athletes say they not only need physical care for their injury, they almost always need therapy. Um, uh, it, sa it says here, well, let me just read it. It says, usually depression sets in, and it's not physiological. Why? One doctor says it's simple. The injury sends them into an existential crisis. Who am I anyway, they ask. It's devastating because very often the loss of their athleticism has totally wiped out their reason for being. By the way, this also happens when athletes uh, retire. Why? Why is it that some athletes make the jump and some athletes never ever get over it, the, law, the end of their career? What's the difference between uh, just honoring a good thing and turning a good thing into an ultimate thing? What's the difference? All the difference in the world. All the difference as to whether you're, able, you're going to be able to live your life functionally. Here's another example. How about um, artist and celebrity? Cynthia Heimel writes for the uh, Village Voice, and she's a kind of snarky writer. She's a funny writer. And um, if you lived in downtown Manhattan, and if you lived there for many, many years, almost everybody, even I, actually, 
not that I live in downtown Manhattan, but uh, if you live in Manhattan for a long enough time, you meet people when they're aspiring to be celebrities or aspiring to be actors or actresses and get into the theater or movies. And, you know, you know, one out of a very small number actually make it. And therefore, almost all of us who've been around know somebody who have made it. They've, they got to Hollywood, you know, and we remember when, when they were just waiters and waitresses at a local uh, uh, bar or something like that. And Cynthia Heimel knew quite a few, but she also noticed something happened to them. And she actually, in, the, in this article, she lists several names that you would know, but I'm not going to tell you uh, who they are because I think it's a little unfair. Well, no, no, I won't. Uh, I can, yeah, never mind. Somebody's going to ask me the question now. But anyway, here's what she says. Listen, here is funny and amazing. I pity celebrities, she said. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. And the morning after, each one of them became famous they all wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha happiness, it actually happened. And the day after, they woke up, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then she adds, and it always takes my breath away, she says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, I would say, uh, as a teacher of the Bible, that the motivation there on God's part is not, that's not fair. God does not give you your deepest wish and then giggle merrily. But what she's saying is, at, almost at the very heart of Romans chapter 1, which says the very worst thing that God could ever do to anybody who is saying, oh, I don't want to live for God, I want to live for my career. I don't want to live for God, I want to live for my spouse. I want to live for God, I want to live for my children or this or that. I, I want to live for professional success. The worst thing I could possibly do is to actually give it to you. Because whatever that is, especially if you become successful at it, you will find that it doesn't give you what you thought it would. You'll wake up the next morning and you'll want to take an overdose. And you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, those of us who are not successful, and that's most of us, haven't really achieved success, we, we can kind of live in the illusion that if we only broke through, then we'd finally feel good about ourselves. Then, we, then we'd really finally have uh, that, that emptiness inside would finally be filled. But there's a small number of people who have really hit the top, way to the top, and they do want to kill themselves in many cases. Or they certainly get cynical or nihilistic or jaded or bitter, do they not? Why? Because the next morning they wake up and they find they're still them. Perhaps the most um, uh, sad and poignant of my examples tonight, and this is, uh, I always shudder a little bit when I read it, is David Foster Wallace, who was a um, a great uh, writer. He was a novelist, uh, an American novelist. At least I don't have any idea, frankly, how well known he was across the world. But in America, he was one of the leading lights of, of postmodern uh, novelists and writers. And he was highly respected and loved. Uh, and um, 
couple of years ago, he committed suicide in his late 40s. Not too long before he committed suicide, he gave a commencement address at a liberal arts college. And this commencement address, as soon as it was given, was noted by many people as being unusual because David Foster Wallace, like a lot of postmodern uh, writers, is impenetrable. He's a very hard, you know, when you read his work, you have no idea what it means. And uh, you're supposed to sit and discuss it and think about it, and that's, it, that's the point. Uh, many, folks have off, have, many folks pointed out that this, uh, this commencement speech was uh, very, very lucid, unusually lucid and direct. Uh, and accessible, but it was not long before he killed himself, and listen to this. He says in the commencement address, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing a spiritual God like Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess. He says, the compelling reason for choosing that kind of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And then he gives examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you do that, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more and more power over others just to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, if that's what you live for, for being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Now, I do not know enough about David Foster Wallace to uh, speculate exactly on the relationship between what he said here to a suicide, though everybody says there's some kind of link. I think we can be confident to say that it was something that ate him alive. One of the things in this list, or maybe something he didn't list, ate him alive. And he says, unless you have a God who can deliver on the hopes that you put in these things, it's going to eat you alive. Now, if this is the case, and if he's right, by the way, I, on websites, especially atheist websites, I've seen so many atheists extremely put out by this commencement address. Because even though David Foster Wallace was essentially a secular person, he had no particular religious beliefs, I've seen many atheists say how upset they are that he would say that there are no such thing as atheists, that everybody worships, that everybody builds their life on something. And I've seen atheists very upset. He says, worship means coming and sitting down in a building and at a religious institution and observing religious services. It's ridiculous to call anything that you live for worship. And that shows exactly what he says. And that is the problem with the, the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is they're unconscious. And if you don't see them yet, you're very, very young. The older you get, the harder it is 
to hide from yourself that you have really bound your heart up with something, a kind of God, and you are betting your life on it, and you are investing so much in it. And only as you get older and older do you begin to realize what Cynthia Heimel says, and that is, even if I get it, I think I'm going to wake up and realize, is this all there is? Now, if this is true, and we all have these idols, and they can really eat us alive if we don't recognize them before it's too late, then what do you do? Uh, well, first of all, you have to try to recognize what they are. How do we know what they are? Now, let me give you a couple of ideas. How do you spot the symptoms of idolatry in your life? Alfred Adler, a very, uh, you know, a leading psychologist, sort of post-Freud, uh, said that it's very hard to find out what you're really living for by just asking yourself that question. So if I ask you, what are you really living for? Your answers will be, oh, I'm living for my family, or I'm living for this political cause, or maybe you'll say, I'm living for God. You know, I'm a religious person, I'm living for God. Adler says, the way to find out what you're really living for is not to ask that question, because you really don't know your own heart very well. Instead, he says, look at your nightmares. What is your worst nightmare? What thing, I know I started like this, but I want to go deeper. What thing, if it were absent, would almost take away your desire to live? So, for example, let's say you're engaged to somebody. And this person you love gives you a tremendous amount of meaning in life. And, of course, he or she will. But then, let's say something happens and you break up. And it was a great relationship. And what are you going to feel? You're going to feel tremendous grief. Because it was a good thing. It was a good thing. And, you're going to, and if you lose it, it's, you're going to feel terrible for a long time. But if you've turned that person into not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing, if that person and what they provide to you is the reason, almost, that you get up in the morning, if that person's love is the main reason you feel like you're really any good, you don't admit that to anybody else, but in your heart, that's how you feel. If you turn a good thing into an ultimate thing and you lose that, it will devastate you. It will destroy you. It doesn't necessarily have to make you suicidal, but it often does. Uh, let me give you two quick uh, examples of this. There was a, there's a, in the beginning, I'm not trying to plug the book, but in the beginning of the Counterfeit Gods book, which I wrote pretty recently, I have a list. There's many places on the web you can find these lists. A list of high-profile <clears throat> high suicides of leaders of major financial institutions that occurred generally in uh, 2008 when the first part of the great economic meltdown, world uh, economic crisis happened. Many, many people who knew that they, were, uh, they had lost so much money killed themselves, many. On the other hand, I had an experience. I, uh, I got to try it very hard to uh, you know, hide this person's identity here, as I tell you. Uh, I had an experience with a woman not too long ago who um, has, over the last few years, given a good number of very large gifts to Christian organizations because she's made a lot of money in the financial world. I went by to see her, and her, she was in tears. She said, this is, I've had the worst day in my career today. <laughs> Just my luck to show up as a pastor on the day. It was the worst day of her career. You know, gosh, now I'm going to have to be pastoral. Um, what do I do? But I didn't have to worry because she did it for me. Uh, and she said, I'm almost sure that at least uh, the kind of, she said, for the last five or six years I've made a lot of money. And I'm in a field that's almost, uh, has almost been devastated. 
And I can tell you right now that almost certainly I'm never going to make anything like the kind of money I've been making. I might make 10% of what I used to make a year. I might make 5% of what I used to make a year. I, my career is largely over. It doesn't mean I won't be able to support myself, but she says, I'm, I'm going to have to change everything, the way in which I live, where I live, you know, my home, everything. And then she says, but I'm kind of excited. Because she says, in the past, you know, I love my church, and she says, in the past I had a lot more money than time. So I had to give you the money. But now I'm going to have a lot more time than money. So I'm going, to be need to, I'm going to need to be retrained. What can I do for the church now? I'm actually kind of excited, in a way. Why didn't she kill herself like all of her friends were killing themselves? Because to them, the people who were devastated, I don't mean they all killed themselves, but for the people who were devastated, who felt like, if I can't live these places, if I can't belong to this club anymore, if I can't live at this level anymore, my life's over, it's over. For them, the money wasn't just money. The money was their image, was their identity, it was their, uh, it was what the Bible calls their righteousness, their sense of acceptability, their sense of, of, of significance. It wasn't just money. You know, it was a kind of salvation. And for her it was just money. Because Jesus was her salvation. I talked in a much sadder, um, she was able to make the jump in other words. I talked uh, a much sadder story. Um, some years ago I talked to a woman who was in and out of uh, mental institutions and sometimes she'd come to church, sometimes not. And at one point uh, her counselor talked to me and said, you know, you're her pastor so I'd like to just brief you on what her problems are. And the counselor who was, uh, uh, you know, he, he was very polite to me as a pastor. He wasn't a Christian believer at all. But he says, he says, this is a woman who is a very, very good musician. And her parents raised her to be a great musician, put a lot of pressure on her to be a great musician. And even though she's really quite a good musician, she's not the world-class, famous, uh, you know, number one, number two, number three kind of artist in her field that she all of her life worked to be, and that her parents were sure she would be. She's just a good musician, and she can't handle it. If she, and he said, she's, you know, she believes in God, and she says she believes in God and she prays, but frankly, this is her God and it has failed her. She believes, she says, oh, I believe in salvation through Jesus. And this is, this guy said to me, he says, but this is her salvation and she has failed. And her parents' approval is more important functionally in her heart than God. Uh, her effort to be a great musician is functionally more important than anything else she believes. So what she believes about God has actually almost nothing to do with how her heart really works. And even he realized that if she actually began to believe what she said she believed, deep in the center of her heart, she'd be free. Um, and I've, I'm not sh I don't know where she is at this point, and I've lost track of her for various reasons. I hope she is. Now, let me give you a little bit of a uh, biblical orientation here. Where does the Bible talk about this? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 is the classic New Testament uh, it's the locus classicus uh, on this subject. And essentially, Paul says there that, that underneath everything else, he says, quote, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. We worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And what it does is it creates not just nightmares, by the way. So here's, I'm trying to tell you, the second way to look at, to, to, the second 
set of symptoms to find your idols is not just look at your nightmares, but look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Because Paul says, when you worship something, you serve it. See? He says they worship and served created things rather than the creator. So if you worship something, if it's more important to you than God, you are to some degree enslaved to it. It drives you. You can't not have it. You can't live without it. And what that does is it creates uncontrollable emotions. I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Uh, I've got more than that, but let me just give you one example. Some years ago, I talked to two women, uh, not, not the same year, but close enough that I could compare them. And both of them had husbands and they had one teenage son. And in both cases, their teenage sons were going off the rails. Uh, they were beginning to, they were having trouble in school, they were having uh, uh, trouble with the law, getting in trouble, and they clearly were, uh, both sons were going bad because the fathers were being lousy fathers. The fathers were cold, they were remote, they had no time for their sons, and the wives could see that the husbands were ruining the son, their, their sons' lives. In both cases, the wives came to me as a pastor, because they came to my church saying, um, you've got to help me because I am so bitter. I am so bitter and angry that our communication is breaking down between me and my husband, and I'm not even sure our marriage is going to survive. So what I did in both cases was, I think what I was supposed to do, I said, are you professing Christians? Yes. And uh, do you believe in forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness? Yes. And that God's forgiven you? Yes. And you must forgive others? Yes. So we sat down, we looked at texts, we prayed together, we talked about, you know, you have to forgive your husband, let's pray for that, let's pray to God for that. To my surprise, uh, let's call her uh, Mother A, who had actually probably the worst husband of the two, and who actually hadn't been in the Christian church for a very long time, forgave. She broke through. Her anger dissipated. It was difficult. And then what she was able to do is start to move on, and it actually helped the communication, because when you're bitter towards somebody, you really can't communicate. You can't persuade them. You're just too furious at them. And their marriage got better. And because the marriage got better, the husband heard somewhat what he, she was saying, and he improved somewhat, enough for uh, the son to improve somewhat. And therefore, basically, we have a happy ending. But Mother B, who had been in the church much longer, and who, from what I could tell, actually probably had the better of the two husbands, could never do it. She could not forgive. She couldn't let go. She was furious. She was angry. She couldn't stand him. And here's the great irony. Why was she unable to do it, even though she tried? Why were her emotions uncontrollable? Why was her anger more than she could handle? Because even though I believe the first mother loved her son, the second mother made her son into the, her meaning in life. What, she looked at her son, and, and actually she spoke like this, in her heart of hearts, she said, if my son is happy, if my son grows up well-adjusted and loving me and having a happy life, then I'll know I did something right. Because I haven't really done much of anything else right. I haven't accomplished much of anything else. But if I just am a good mother to him and he grows up, then I'll feel like you know, my life really had some kind of significance. Do you realize what she just did? Her mothering was her salvation. Her son was her savior and his love. In spite of the fact that she came to, Christ, you know, to Christian church and said, oh, Jesus is my savior, but her son was her savior. Functionally, really, honestly. The Bible says we all worship and serve something besides the creator in our natural default mode. 
And that means that, ironically, she couldn't forgive her husband. She stayed angry at him. The relationship broke down. The communication broke down. The marriage broke apart. And the son got worse. Ironically, by loving her son more than she loved God, she destroyed him. Because your, your idol will always break your heart. Now, uncontrollable emotions, you see, if, if, if something is not just a good thing, if money's not just money, if my son's not just my son, you know, if my ministry's not just my ministry, but it's like a kind of salvation, a kind of justification, a feeling like now I'm justified. Now, now uh, you know, my life means something. It's not all for loss. If you look to anything like that, it will eat you alive. So finally, we have to come to the place of asking, what do we do about it? And here's what we have to do about it. And I hope now you see, uh, as I wrap up, why this, this subject is important, regardless of where you are spiritually, regardless of where you are when it comes to faith. For example, if you say, I'm not sure I believe in Christianity. Uh, in fact, I'm still having trouble figuring it out. In New York City, I found very often one of the reasons why people find Christianity not cogent is because the cross doesn't seem cogent. Doesn't, Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us for our sins, well, that's an interesting thing, many of my skeptical friends say. But uh, why? Why? I don't feel that bad. I'm, I'm sure there are murders, murderers and robbers and, and people who've done terrible things. And maybe they will uh, say, oh, I'm terrible and I need God to save me through forgiveness. But for the most of the rest of us, we're decent people. We live pretty good lives. You know, I don't think I'm so bad that I need that. Um, but the problem, the essence, the essence of your trouble, the essence of sin, is not the bad things. It's turning a good thing into an ultimate thing, which, by the way, leads to bitterness, which can lead to murder, it can lead to harm, it can lead to oppression. See, all the bad things, all the, behaviorally, the behavioral bad things, uh, you know, like lying and like uh, viciousness and all those things, it comes from idolatry. And even if you're living a good life, your idolatry will still destroy you. All of our hearts, good people and bad people, once you understand the concept of idolatry, all of our hearts are still riddled with sin, riddled with self-centeredness, riddled with self-justification, riddled with our desire essentially to keep control of our lives by saying, if I have this, then I am worth it, then I am valuable. And in a sense, I don't really need God. That's sin. And once you understand idolatry, I've had an awful lot of my skeptical friends in New York say, if that's sin, well, yeah, of course I'm sinful. And very often they say, I'm not sure I believe in God, but I can see, your I can see the point. In fact, some people say, yes, I, I am driven, I am anxious, these things probably are too important to me. And maybe, maybe, well, you know, I feel that when a person who doesn't believe hears, idolatry, hears about idolatry and actually sees it in their own life, there's a tendency for them to say, I don't know if I believe in Christianity, but it would be great if it was true. And if you get to that place, I think you not only know, you understand idolatry, but you actually start to, you've started to understand your own heart. And therefore, idolatry shows us 
why the gospel is necessary, why Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins, because we are all riddled with idolatry, good people and bad people, and we need God's forgiveness. But it's not enough just to look at the objective um, accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. He died for our sins. He paid for our sins. So now you're free from the guilt of your idolatry. He's, if you go to God and say, God, Father, accept me because of what Jesus has done, he will accept you because your idolatry sins have been forgiven. But it's not enough just to look at the objective uh, accomplishment of the cross. You have to subjectively bring into your life what God has done and what Jesus particularly has done on the cross for you. It has to become, when you see his love for you and his sacrifice for you and, uh, and doing it out of desire for you, that has to become so beautiful, that has to become so compelling, that has to so melt you and move you, that then you can take that subjective joy you have in what he's done for you and apply it to your idols. Because that's what turns money into just money. What turns spouses into just spouses, and sons into just sons, and daughters into just daughters? Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, in the Bible, there's a place where Jacob, uh, once to, she, he falls in love with Leah, and he says to Leah, pardon me, he falls in love with Rachel, excuse me. There's another part of the story, but I'm not going to go into that. And he goes to Rachel's father, Laban, and says, please, I'd like to marry your daughter. And of course, in those days, you had to pay a price to the family if you're going to marry your, the daughter. And Laban says, you have to work for me for seven years, seven years hard labor if you're going to get Rachel. And that was an exorbitant bride price even then. But the text tells us in Genesis 29, it tells us, but Jacob, for Jacob, those seven years went by like that. It, it, it felt like no trouble or no time at all because of his love for her. He had this overmastering positive passion. He loved Rachel so much that it enabled him not to care about the drudgery of the work. Now, Thomas Chalmers, the great uh, Scottish minister and theologian, wrote a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And Thomas Chalmers says, Nobody changes bad habits by just trying. Nobody changes bad habits just uh, by saying, I'm going to really try hard to change. Nobody overcomes being scared or overcomes racial prejudice or anything just by trying. Here's what he says, overcomes your character flaws. He says, the heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. What you need to drive out your fears and your uncontrollable emotions and all those things that are driving you and, and even that emptiness that you're trying to fill with these false gods. The one thing you need is an overmastering positive passion. And what is that? Um, I love my wife. I actually have a very good marriage. And one of the things I learned from reading the letters of John Newton, who also had a good marriage, was that uh, you're, in a good marriage, your spouse can become your biggest idol. I actually have that problem. I struggle with it all the time. Uh, I respect my wife's opinion over everybody else, and I want her affection more than anybody else's. And even now, after 35 years of preaching on my way home, you know, on, after Sunday, I want to know what she thinks of the sermon. I don't really care what anybody else thinks. And uh, she's heard me, and she's heard me, and if she says it was a good sermon, it's probably a pretty good sermon. And so often, she doesn't think it's a good sermon. 
And then I, and she doesn't want to tell me because she knows about the idolatry problem. So I say, hey, so did, you, did you like the service today? Which really means, what did you think of my sermon? <laughs> and, uh, and she says, oh yeah. <laughs> I said, well, the sermon, I mean, do you have any suggestions? You know, which is my way of trying to say, do you have any suggestions? Which means, please gush or something. And uh, if she ever says, it was fine, I'm crestfallen. Still, 30, you know, 60 years old, 35 years, I mean. And she gets furious at me, and she should. She says, don't you dare put this kind of pressure on me. She says, you know, at this point, um, it's what God thinks about you. It's, it's you stand before God, not me. So we are very sensitive to our various idolatries. I'm not going to tell you about hers. It's not fair. I'll confess my own sins. But the, the fact of the matter is that both of us realize something. Someday one of us is going to look at the other one in a coffin. One of us is going to be standing there and the other one's going to be in a coffin. And if the person in the coffin is our savior, if, when, if you make any human being more important than God, when that human being is lying in the coffin, your God's not going to be able to help you when your heart is breaking. What is going to get my heart to pull itself off of my wife so she's just a wife? So I can really love her truly. Remember that woman? Her, her, because her son was more than a son to her, he didn't she didn't love him right. Because their careers were more than careers, they didn't execute them right. And because my wife tends to be more than just a wife to me, I'm in great danger. What is going to pull my heart off of my wife so that I can just love her? I've got to see the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done. Let me close with this illustration. Years ago, I talked to a woman who lived in a trailer park right near my little church in my little town in Hopewell, Virginia. And I was a young minister, and I was trying to help her. She had really had a very hard life, but she ended up teaching me more because she knew more about life than I did. And here's what her problem was. She had lived a very hard life. At this time, she was in her 40s. Uh, she'd been in and out of jail, I think. I know she'd been in and out of drug addiction. You could just tell by looking at her, she looked a lot older than her, being in her early 40s, though she was. She had been cursed by being born beautiful. Evidently, she was a beautiful child, she was a beautiful little girl, and she was an absolutely beautiful young woman. And because of that, there were always men after her, especially powerful men, to whom having a, a woman like, looking like that was a badge of uh, power. And because of that, she had turned male affection into the idol of her life. She literally felt she was nobody unless somebody loved her, especially a man. And as a result, she, she did not put up decent boundaries. Uh, she let men abuse her, sometimes physically. Uh, she was not selective about who she was with. She just needed one at any given time. And as a result, she was a subject of violence. She was in and out of prison. She was in and out of drug, drug addiction. She, was, she had a horrible life. And then what happened at the very end was uh, it all broke down uh, and she became a Christian. And as she became a Christian, she began therapy. And the therapist was very happy. It was very helpful to her in some ways. But here's, uh, she told me this. She told me at one point, the therapist came and said, look, your problem is you've based your self-image and your identity and your significance and security on male affection. Right, she said. And this has been terrible for you. No boundaries, abuse, right. You just can't love yourself unless you know that some man loves you, right.
So here's what I want you to do, said the therapist. You've got to get a career. You've got to become a successful career woman. We've got to help you end your, I mean, get, get the rest of your uh, education and get a marketable skill, and then you get a career and you're self-sufficient and you'll feel good about yourself because you will be a successful career woman. And she said, this is what she told me, she said to her therapist, look, with all due respect, you've helped me so much, but let me just ask, you want me to take a typical female idol, which I've built my life on, which has destroyed my life, and now you want me to adopt a typical male idol, uh, so instead of getting all my self-esteem from a man loving me, now I'm going to get all my self-esteem from being successful and making money. She says, what if I don't want either addiction? Can't you let me build my life on something that uh, doesn't, you know, can't let me down? That isn't dependent on me performing and earning my salvation? And the therapist says, well, I don't know. But see, she already did know. She was still working it out. And she came to Colossians chapter 3. There's a place there where it says, uh, your life now, if you're a Christian, is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. And that riveted her. And she realized what that meant. Because Jesus died for her. Because Jesus loved her. Because Jesus poured herself, himself out for her. Every other man had basically made her pour herself out for him, for her, for him. In other words, every other man came into, into her life saying, your life for mine. And Jesus had come into her life and said, my life for you. I'm pouring my life out for you. And as a result, Jesus became, as it were, you know, her Rachel, her treasure, her pearl of great price. And she says, now when I see a guy coming after me or even looking at me like this, I say something in my heart, and what I say to myself in my heart, not out loud, <laughs> but in my heart, I look at this guy and I say, hey, hi, guy, you know, maybe, maybe you're great, maybe we'll get together, and that would be nice, maybe we'll get married, that would be nice, but I want you to know, you will never be my life, Christ is my life, and because I won't make you into a savior, I might end up making you a really good wife. Do you understand? How what the Bible says about idolatry, how what the Bible says about sin, makes sense of your life, makes sense of your heart, makes sense then of the cross, and makes sense of the world. I hope you do. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.